Jonah chapter 3, the faith and repentance of the Ninevites. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. So Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Now Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk, and he cried out and said, Yet forty days, and Nineveh will be overthrown. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. When the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. And he issued a proclamation, and it said, In Nineveh, by the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let man, beast, herd, or flock taste a thing. Do not let them eat or drink water. But both man and beast must be covered with sackcloth, and let men call on God earnestly, that each may turn from his wicked way and from the violence which is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger, so that we shall not perish. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring upon them, and he did not do it. Amen. Let's pray, shall we? Our Lord, we're grateful for this holy word you've given to us. We cherish it. We pray that it will nourish us. It will strengthen us. It will show us the right way. Teach us, Father, to do that which is right and good in your sight always. And may we learn from these words how to please you and glorify you in our preaching and even in our response to hearing your word. We ask in the name of Christ. Amen. Jonah chapter 3 is the second of the two chapters in the book of Jonah, where Jonah is obedient. He was obedient in chapter 2, obedient in chapter 3, disobedient in chapter 1 and in chapter 4. But it doesn't end that way in dis complete disobedience. We'll see next time. Well, in Jonah 3, his obedience, we pick it up at verse 1. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, the word of the Lord, it came to him the first time in chapter 1, verses 1 to 3, and that's where God told him to arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and cry against it, for their wickedness has come up before me. But Jonah rose up to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He fled from the presence of the Lord in disobedience the first time. The second time, he obeyed. This would be similar to John 21, John 21, 15 to 23, when the disciples are renewed in their love for Christ, especially Peter, but they are renewed in their love for Christ. They fled, they fled when he was arrested in Matthew 26, Matthew 26, 47 to 75. They fled, but here in John 21, they are confirmed in their faith because they had repented of their flight. In the same way, Jonah does this. But he acts based on the word of the Lord. He acts on the, on the basis of the word of the Lord, 
not his own will and whim. We see a contrast of this in Numbers 14, Numbers 14, 39 to 45. Numbers 14, 39 to 45, where when the people of Israel refused to conquer the land of Canaan based on the bad report of the 10 spies, they were demoralized and then God pronounced judgment against them. After hearing the word of judgment, they said that they mourned greatly and they said, we have sinned, they recognize that, but we'll go up now and we'll go conquer. But God told them through Moses, don't go up now because God's not with you. Don't go up. But they went up anyways and were defeated. In this case, Jonah, he waits to hear the word of the Lord, and then he goes up. He does what he needs to do. Verse two, arise, go to Nineveh, the great city, and proclaim to it the proclamation which I'm going to tell you. And verse three says, so Jonah arose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. In the second oracle, God told him the same thing, arise and go to Nineveh, calls it a great city again, like he did in chapter one, verse two. It also says that in verse three, that it was an exceedingly great city. So this is a concern that God has for the city, for a word to be proclaimed, the word of the gospel to be proclaimed, and for them to repent. We notice in verse two, He specifies, God specifies to Jonah, proclaim to it the proclamation which I am going to tell you. What God wants him to preach is what he's supposed to preach. He's not supposed to preach anything more or anything less, but exactly what God wants him to preach. We see examples of this in Jeremiah, Jeremiah 1.17. We'll see three references in Jeremiah. Jeremiah 1.17, the prophet is told the same. Now gird up your loins and arise and speak to them all which I command you. Do not be dismayed before them, lest I dismay you before them. Speak to them all which I command you. And if he doesn't, he's afraid, then God is going to punish him. Jeremiah 26, Jeremiah 26, 1 and 2. Jeremiah 26, 1 and 2. In the beginning of the reign of Jehoiakim, the son of Josiah, king of Judah, this word came from the Lord, saying, Thus says the Lord, Stand in the court of the Lord's house and speak to all the cities of Judah who have come to worship in the Lord's house all the words that I have commanded you to speak to them. Do not omit a word. Do not omit a word. And why would he be tempted to omit a word? Jeremiah and Jonah, why would they be tempted to do so? Because they're supposed to preach repentance. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. Verse three, perhaps they will listen and everyone will turn from his evil way that I may relent of the calamity which I am planning to do to them because of the evil of their deeds. And you will say to them, thus says the Lord, if you will not listen to me to walk in my law, which I have set before you to listen to the words of my servants, the prophets, 
whom I have been sending to you again and again, but you have not listened. Then I will make this house like Shiloh, and this city I will make a curse to all the nations of the earth. And one more place is 42, verse 4. Jeremiah 42, verse 4. Then Jeremiah the prophet said to them, I have heard you. Behold, I'm going to pray to the Lord your God in accordance with your words, and it will come about that the whole message which the Lord will answer you, I will tell you. I will not keep back a word from you. These people in Jeremiah 42 are pretending to want to hear God's word from Jeremiah. They're pretending. And Jeremiah says, whatever God tells me, I'm going to tell you, I will not keep back a word from you. He understands, he knows that they are pretenders, though they say, we want to hear God's word from you. He eventually hears God's word, Jeremiah does, tells them not to sin in the way they want to sin, but they refuse to listen. They refuse, and he knows that that's the case. It's the same here in the book of Jonah, that he is preaching repentance. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. We'll see in a moment that that includes repentance. We see it clearly from their response, but we'll see it more in a moment. Now, are Christian pastors, are pastors supposed to do the same? Or do they have some leeway in this supposed age of grace? Do they have some leeway? Is it more flexible when pastors preach? Well, let's see. 1 Corinthians 2. 1 Corinthians 2, where the apostle sets the example. He is the model of what we should do. 1 Corinthians 2, 1 to 5. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 1. And when I came to you, brethren, I did not come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, proclaiming to you the testimony of God. For I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. And my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, that your faith should not rest on the wisdom of men, but on the power of God. Verse 1, the apostle says, He didn't come with superiority of speech or of wisdom, meaning superiority of man's speech or man's wisdom, which is actually earthly, natural, and demonic, according to James 3, 13 to 18. It's earthly, natural, and demonic, human speech and human wisdom. Because he was determined, he had con the conviction of faith, according to 1 Corinthians 2, 2, to preach only Jesus Christ and him crucified which means he did not preach himself and he did not preach only positive things. Because if he's preaching the crucifixion, he's preaching the cross. If he's preaching the cross, he has to preach why Jesus came and died on the cross. He has to talk about blood and why the blood was shed. It was shed not for 
Christ's own sins because he committed no sin, but it was shed for our sin if we believe in him. That's the message he was preaching. And he had this conviction so much in him, he admits to his own weakness, fear, and much trembling. Not because he feared men, but because he feared God. He was terrified at the threat of the judgment of God on him if he didn't tell the whole truth to the people. And he wanted the people to not be persuaded by the wisdom of men, but by the demonstration of the Spirit, of power, because their faith should rest on the power of God, not the wisdom of men. And the power of God is contained in the Word of God, according to Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. The power of God is in the word of the gospel. The Spirit of God uses the word of God to produce a child of God. Jonah 3, 3. We also noticed in 3.3 that Jonah rose and went to Nineveh according to the word of the Lord. Jonah was now conscientious. He was particular. He was not playing with the word of God as he did earlier. Now he has a concern to follow it carefully. This is the case of everyone with a tender heart, to follow God according to the word of the Lord. To follow God according to the word of the Lord is godly, it's righteous, it's good. It's not legalism, it's not Pharisaism, it's not works salvation, it's not works righteousness. Obeying God according to the word of God is what God expects of us. 1 Corinthians 7, 1 Corinthians 7, 19. Circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. What matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. John, in 1 John 2, 3 to 6. 1 John 2, 3 to 6 says the same. And by this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. We must obey God according to his word. Those who do not, they are in fact the Pharisees. They are in fact the legalists because they are trusting the words of men and the wisdom of men, the will of men, the traditions of men. 
They're not following God according to his word. They're following man's wisdom, which is under a curse. Anyone who trusts in men is under a curse. Jeremiah 17, 5. Jonah, in Jonah 3, 3, once he arises and goes, now we have a description of the city. It calls it in Jonah 3, 3, an exceedingly great city, a three days walk. It seems from this passage, when it says a three days walk, it's further clarifying exceedingly great city. So certainly in terms of its size, this is mentioned here because it's a three days walk. And some historians have estimated that it's anywhere from a few miles to about 60 miles that encompasses the city, about 60 miles as much as that. Um, whatever it is in terms of space, land mass, the population, according to chapter 4, verse 11, had 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. It is great in size, in terms of land. It's great in terms of size, in terms of population. But also, according to Jonah 4.11, it's great in that God is concerned for the people and the animals therein. Because he says, should I not have compassion on Nineveh, the great city? in which there are more than 120,000 persons who do not know the difference between their right and left hand, as well as many animals. God has compassion for the men and the animals who dwell in that city. This is also further indicated by the literal rendering. You may have in your Bible a footnote for verse 3 that says, it literally says in the original language, a great city to God, which means uh, perhaps it could mean a great city with reference to God, or God refers to it as a great city. It's a great city in his estimation, in God's view, which would match both chapter 3, verse 3, and chapter 4, verse 11. So then we come to verse four. Then Jonah began to go through the city one day's walk and he cried out and said, yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He goes one day's walk, notice only one day's walk and he preaches and we see that he didn't have to go for three days, only one day. According to verses four and following, he only had to go one day which means when he first arrived, he did not embark on a tour. He didn't hire a tour guide to go see all of the great monuments and people and buildings, historical sites of the place. He didn't do that. He went a day's walk to preach as he was supposed to do. He went for the ministry. He didn't go for pleasure. 
which is good. That's the way we should be. And further, he cried out with his message. That means that he had to amass some courage with the help of the Lord. He had to amass courage. He had to collect some courage to preach because now he's in a foreign city. He's hundreds of miles away from his homeland. He's at least 500 miles away. So if he's hundreds of miles away in a foreign land where everyone is a stranger, perhaps there's a few Jews or Hebrew people there, but he's going as a stranger. And he's going with a harsh message. He's going with a message that is difficult to take. He's going with a message that's preaching repentance, calling out their sin. That's the message he has. And with the threat of judgment. Yet, he still cried out. He still, with a booming voice, with a loud voice to the people, told them what they needed to hear. He told them what they needed to hear. Of course, when he is crying out with a loud voice, he's going to attract the attention of the people. Who is this man shouting these words to us? In 2 Corinthians 4.13, it says, Just as it is written, I believed, therefore... I spoke. So also we believe, therefore also we speak. If we believe, we speak. If God tells us to preach, we will preach. That's the way of the Christian. Not just the apostles, not just pastors, but all Christians. 2 Corinthians 4, 13. Jeremiah the prophet said something similar to this. Jeremiah the prophet. Jeremiah chapter 20. Jeremiah chapter 27 to 13. Jeremiah 27 to 13. O Lord, you have deceived me and I was deceived. You have overcome me and prevailed. I have become a laughingstock all day long. Everyone mocks me. For each time I speak, I cry aloud. I proclaim violence and destruction, because for me the word of the Lord has resulted in reproach and derision all day long. But if I say, I will not remember him or speak any more in his name. Then in my heart, it becomes like a burning fire shut up in my bones and I am weary of holding it in and I cannot endure it. For I have heard the whispering of many terror on every side. Denounce him. Yes, let us denounce him. All my trusted friends watching for my fall say, perhaps he will be deceived so that we may prevail against him and take our revenge on him. But the Lord is with me like a dread champion. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble and not prevail. They will be utterly ashamed because they have failed with an everlasting disgrace that will not be forgotten. Yet, O Lord of hosts, you who test the righteous, who see the mind and the heart, 
Let me see your vengeance on them, for to you I have set forth my cause. Sing to the Lord, praise the Lord, for he has delivered the soul of the needy one from the hand of evildoers. This is what Jonah had. He had this kind of boldness and he could not contain it within him. He had to speak forth and preach aloud the true message. And what was his message? Jonah 3 verse 4. Yet 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. He gives them 40 days. And then he also says they will be overthrown. First, to overthrow, this is first used in Genesis 19.25 in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. And it is used repeatedly in Scripture to overthrow. And in the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, they didn't have a prophet like Jonah to give them a last-minute call to repentance. It happened to them suddenly when the sun arose one morning, everything was calm and peaceful as it usually is, and then suddenly God reigned, the Lord reigned, the Lord Jesus rained fire and brimstone from the Lord out of heaven on them in Genesis 19.25. Well, the prophets, such as Jonah here, they make use of this word to overthrow. And in this case, it's implicitly reminding us of Sodom and Gomorrah. In Amos 4.11, it's explicitly mentioned in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah. Amos 4.11 and elsewhere, such as Deuteronomy 29.23 and Isaiah 13.19. Deuteronomy 29.23, Isaiah 13.19. So, God sometimes sends prophets so that cities will not be overthrown, and sometimes he does not send prophets to overthrow cities. In this case, he gave them 40 days. He gave them 40 days. Why? Because in that message that Jonah preached, he preached faith and repentance. He preached faith in the true God. We know that it has to be the case because of verse 5, which, is, which says the people of Nineveh believed in God. Not their idols, but the God of Jonah, the true and living God. They believed in God. Also, they repented according to verses 5 to 10. They turned away from sin. How did they know to turn away from sin? Because Jonah preached that. That which is implied in verse 4 is made obvious in verses 5 to 10. Furthermore, Jonah knew he was preaching like this. What he's preaching essentially is dubbed as a conditional message, a conditional word, a conditional message. If you don't repent in 40 days, you will be overthrown. That is implicit in chapter 3, verse 4, but explicit in 5 to 10. The conditional message. 
Further, in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, after the Ninevites repented and believed, chapter 4, verses 1 and 2, Jonah admits this to God. Chapter 4, verse 1. But it greatly displeased Jonah, and he became angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, Please, Lord, was not this what I said while I was still in my own country? Therefore, in order to forestall this, I fled to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness, and one who relents concerning calamity. Jonah says, I know your character, God, and this is what I said when I first fled to Tarshish. I knew this, and that's why I fled, because I knew that once I went there, if they repented, you would forgive them. Jonah explains his actions. The actions of chapter 1, he explains here in chapter 4, verse 2, which proves that Jonah knew and did, in fact, preach a conditional message. If you repent, God will forgive you. This is important because false interpreters say Jonah's message was unconditional, unconditional, then God didn't know they were going to repent, and then God changed his mind. God didn't know the future. He didn't know what the will of man was going to do, and then God changed, changed his mind. That's not the case. We'll speak more of that and why that's wrong. Then we pick it up, at verse 5. Then the people of Nineveh believed in God, and they called a fast and put on sackcloth from the greatest to the least of them. In verse 5, in a nutshell, we have faith and repentance. We have faith and repentance. They believed in God, and they called a fast, and that is further explained in verses uh, 6 to 10. Their repentance is further explained. We see how it is true that they must have faith to repent because nobody repents unless he knows something to be true. So when they heard the word of Jonah that it was true, they believed it was true, it caused them to repent. That's in terms of what happens inside the human heart. Faith precedes repentance, which is what we have here. However, because everyone says he has faith, everyone says he believes, but doesn't show it in his actions, the scripture here expands on the repentance to tell us that they did indeed repent. They weren't bogus believers. They didn't have fake faith. They had true faith. They truly trusted in God. That's why there's a further explanation here. We also notice when it says that they believed in God, what was it that they believed in Jonah's proclamation, in Jonah's message? Is verse 4 the total of what he preached, we already said no. 
But let's expand on that according to verse five, because it says they believed in God. What was it that they had to believe in God? Was it merely that they believed Jonah's God to be real and added Jonah's God to their gods? Or was it that they believed in Jonah's God, that he was true, gave up their idols, and that's all? Did Jonah say something more about the God in whom they must believe? That's the question. We find the answer by the most accurate and supreme interpreter of Scripture. That's Christ. Luke 11. Luke chapter 11, 29 to 32. Luke 11, 29 to 32. Verse 29. And as the crowds were increasing, he began to say, This generation is a wicked generation. It seeks for a sign. And yet no sign shall be given it to it but the sign of Jonah. For just as Jonah became a sign to the Ninevites, so shall the Son of Man be to this generation. The Queen of the South shall rise up with the men of this generation at the judgment and condemn them, because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon. And behold, something greater than Solomon is here. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Well, we see in verses 29 and 30, Christ calls it the sign of Jonah. The sign of Jonah. And in 30, he calls it that he says, Jonah became a sign to whom? Is the sign of Jonah a sign for you and me? Or is the sign of Jonah a sign for someone else? Well, first it was a sign to whom? Verse 30. To the Ninevites. To the Ninevites. For the benefit of the Ninevites. He preached to them that he himself was a sign to the Ninevites. That's what he preached. But what was the sign? that he preached to the Ninevites. What did that sign entail? What did it contain? What was the sign all about? Well, Matthew tells us. Matthew 12, Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Matthew 12, 38 to 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. But he answered and said to them, An evil and adulterous generation craves for a sign, and yet no sign shall be given to it but the sign of Jonah the prophet. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh shall stand up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it, because they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. The queen of the south shall rise up with this generation at the judgment and shall condemn it because she came from the ends of the earth to hear the wisdom of Solomon and behold, something greater than Solomon 
is here. In 38 and 39, it's called a sign again. Jesus says, the sign of Jonah the prophet. But what was the sign itself in Jonah the prophet? 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so shall the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. What did Jonah preach? He preached that God had put him in the belly of the sea monster for three days and three nights. He preached that he was dead and became alive because God resurrected him. He preached that he himself was a sign of a future coming of Christ, that Christ would die on the cross, be buried for three days and three nights, and be raised on the third day. He preached not only his own experience, what God did to him, but his experience, Jonah's experience, was a sign of the coming Christ and his death and resurrection. They, the Ninevites, put their faith in Christ. It wasn't a general faith in God. It wasn't a vague faith in God. It wasn't merely that they needed to believe and repent, give up their evil deeds, and then they would be saved. It wasn't anything like that. It was faith in Christ. Belief in Christ. Jesus said so in Matthew 12 and Luke 11. And if the Lord Jesus says so, it's true. Also, what's true? We'll see in a moment the description of their repentance. But it is indeed a true repentance. We see it from the context. Verse 10, God saw their deeds that they turned from their wicked way. God relented. He did not destroy them. He did not do it. And even Jonah knows that in chapter 4 because he's very angry and wants to die. So they did truly repent. Jesus even says in Matthew 12 and Luke 11 that they are going to judge the unrepentant scribes and Pharisees and everyone like them on the day of judgment. They're going to be the judges of the scribes and the Pharisees. The Ninevites will be. That could only be true if they truly repented and truly believed in the gospel. 1 Corinthians 6, 2, do you not know that the saints will judge the world? The Ninevites are included in the number of saints to judge the wicked world, including the Pharisees and everyone like them. So it's a true repentance. That must be stated, though it might seem obvious to you, it must be stated because some interpreters of the Bible called the Ninevites' repentance a superficial repentance, a sham repentance, when that's not the case. It was a true repentance. So let's see how they repented. Verse 5, they called a fast. Likely this was a one-day fast, though the text does not say explicitly. They called a fast. A fast. They quit eating food and even drinking water, according to what it says there in verse 7. Do not let them eat or drink water. 
they called a fast for one day, no eating and no drinking of water. Then also they put on sackcloth, sackcloth, rough material instead of soft and smooth material. And who did so? The greatest to the least of them. The greatest means those in the upper ranks of society and those in the lower ranks of society, greater and lesser of the people. Didn't matter who they were. That means that it was a widespread universal repentance. Verse 6, when the word reached the king of Nineveh, he arose from his throne, laid aside his robe from him, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat on the ashes. Even the king himself does the same. Off his throne, takes off his robe, he puts on sackcloth and sits on ashes. Sitting on ashes or wearing ashes is in reference to considering ourselves dust and ashes. Considering uh, ourselves originating from the dust and returning to the dust, like Genesis three seventeen to 19. We originate from dust and we return to dust. And when we repent, it reminds us that our sins deserve death. Our sins deserve death. Even Abraham, when he pleads with God, considers himself dust and ashes in Genesis 18, 27. Dust and ashes. And this is what they are doing. Externally, they're doing it, but they're doing it because internally, they consider themselves that way. They're doing it sincerely. We've already addressed whether they are sincere in their faith and repentance. They're doing it sincerely. And when they do it sincerely, God takes notice. Furthermore, not only did the king do so, but he issues a decree. He issues a decree. People say you can't issue decrees for this kind of behavior. But the king did, and he was successful. He issued a decree that every man man, beast, herd, and flock, not taste anything, not eat or drink anything. But instead, verse 8, man and beast must be covered with sackcloth. He even called on the owners of the beasts, the domestic animals, to put sackcloth on them. A word of clarification, why in the world would the animals be included here? Well, the animals were included from the very first sin. In Genesis 3, 17 to 19, and Genesis 3, 21, when the curse came on men because of Adam and Eve's sin, the first animal died, first animals died in Genesis 3, 21, and then in chapter 4, Cain and Abel, Abel offers animals. So animals begin to die because of the sin of man. So this would be symbolic of them being preserved because they have blood, just like we have blood. So a curse comes on man, but it also comes on animals and plants. But closer to man 
then plants are the animals. So they are included because of that relationship. They have the breath of life and they also have blood. In the same way, this is what God did in the time of Noah. Didn't all the animals also die? In Genesis 7, 13 to 24, all the animals except those taken into the ark died because of man's sin. So is the case here. And one more place would be Romans 8, 18 to 25, where the apostle says that the whole creation is mourning and groaning because of man's sin. But when man, when we are restored, when we receive our adoption as sons, when we are resurrected from the dead, then God will restore all of creation. Therefore, they won't experience pain anymore. All right, then. We notice in verse 8, it says, Let men call on God earnestly, fervently. Men call on God. This is genuine, fervent prayer to God. Mourning over sin. To turn from evil ways and violence. Evil ways and violence. Why? Because they hope. That's why he says, who knows? Verse 9, who knows? God may turn and relent and withdraw his burning anger so that we shall not perish. He doesn't know if God's going to actually do it. He just knows what he needs to do. His obligation is to repent. Their obligation is to repent. Mercy is completely up to God. And he understood that. Another indication that Jonah explained more than just the one sentence of verse four. God may or may not forgive. Are you genuinely repentant? If God determines so, then he may forgive you. Finally, verse 10. When God saw their deeds, that they turned from their wicked way, then God relented concerning the calamity which he had declared he would bring up upon them, and he did not do it. God saw their deeds. In Genesis 6, 5 and 6, it also says that God saw the wickedness of man, that it was great. Here, he sees their repentance. And now that he sees their true repentance, they actually did turn away from sin. God relented. This word relent is sometimes rendered relent. Sometimes God was sorry and sometimes God changed his mind. Anyway, it's rendered even in this verse. The question arises, did God know before he saw? Is God omniscient? Meaning, does he even know all things future, even the future actions of men? Does he know the thoughts and the will of man before it actually happens, before they actually act? The answer is yes, of course he does. However, this verse has been used by heretics to say that God does not know the future. 
God is taken by surprise. That's why he's grieved. That's why he's sorrowful. That's why he changes his mind. That's what they say. That God has to observe. God has to discover. God has to learn. God has to, in some cases, anticipate or be a futurist, to use an economic term. He's a futurist. He observes how the economy will go, the economy among men, and God makes decisions accordingly. This belief is heresy, and it's called both open theism and free will theism. Open theism, the future is open to God based on man's free will, and it's called free will theism, that is, God is dependent upon the free will of man, also known by philosophers and theologians as libertarian free will. This view of free will, libertarian free will, is taken wrongfully by passages like this one in Jonah 3. However, that's not what he's saying. Is God a fortress? Is God a rock? Is God a shield? Is God a sword? Is God a door? Is God a shepherd? No, he's not any of those things. Yet the Bible describes him like that. Why? Because there's something known by interpreters. It's called anthropomorphism, meaning in human form, God speaks so that we understand something about his character and something about his actions. Anthropomorphism. There's also another one called anthropopophism, meaning in human emotions or with human emotions, God presents himself that way. And that's what he's doing here. That's all it is. That is, God presents a condition which he did, we've already explained. He presented a condition to them. If they repent, they will be forgiven and not be destroyed. If they don't repent, then they will be receiving the righteous judgment of God, which would be their destruction, their overthrow. And that's the condition he presented. So based on man's action, after the word is presented, if man repents, then the Bible calls it God changing his mind when he withholds judgment because they repented. That's all that it is. Just like when God's called a lion, there's an aspect of the lion's character that's true of God. But it doesn't mean God is a lion, that God roars and that he feeds on the prey of animals that are helpless. It doesn't mean that. It just means that he's very strong and can do whatever he wants to call God a lion, to call Christ a lion. That's all it means. And the same right here. We have absolute confirmation that God knows the future and he even causes the future. Ephesians 1.11, who causes all things to work after the counsel of his will. Ephesians 1.11. According to Romans 8.28, God causes all things to work together for good to those who... Love God to those who are called according to his purpose. Romans 8, 28. He causes all things to work together for good. 
Even Isaiah 46, 10, Isaiah 46, 10 and 11. Let's actually read 8 to 11. Isaiah 46, 8 to 11. Remember this and be assured, recall it to mind, you transgressors. Remember the former things long past, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying, my purpose will be established and I will accomplish all my good pleasure calling a bird of prey from the east, the man of my purpose from a far country. Truly I have spoken, truly I will bring it to pass. I have planned it, surely I will do it. The means God used was the preaching of the gospel by God's servant, the prophet Jonah. That was the means. But the decree of God, the will of God, the purpose of God was to use that to grant faith and repentance to the Ninevites, to grant it as a gift. God was not taken by surprise. Philippians 1.29, For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. Philippians 1.29, Faith is a gift. 2 Timothy 2, 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. 2 Timothy 2, 23 to 26. Even repentance is a gift of God. It's granted by God. 2 Timothy 2, 23. But refuse foolish and ignorant speculations, knowing that they produce quarrels. And the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, be able to teach, patient when, wrong, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance, leading to the knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will." Faith and repentance, gifts of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.